In this series of podcasts, we discuss the transforming work of God, who is uncreated being, upon our souls as limited, created being. We discover how His Word reveals the truth of the union of His Spirit with our spirit through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. This transformation of our lives is not just about a change from bad to good. It's about a shift from natural to spiritual, from old creation to new creation. I'm Scott Kardash and I'm here with Pastor Paul O'Sullivan and today we're going to talk about the eighth of the Ten Commandments. This is in Exodus 20 verse 15, you shall not steal. Now Paul is saying once a thief always a thief and we've been looking at the uh, transformational element of all the commandments and this one I assume is no exception so I guess you wouldn't agree with that statement. No, hi Scott. That's right because that saying is something that many people do believe once a thief always a thief but it's not a true proverb like a leopard cannot change its spots. I mean that's For real, a leopard can't do anything about what it is. That's called a proverb. But once a thief, always a thief isn't really a proverb. It's what they call a maxim. It seems to be true in the court of popular opinion. But it's not an absolute truth because people can change. We're not leopards with spots. We're people with attitudes. And once a thief, then one day a generous giver, a productive person. That's the way I look at it. And that's what we'll be talking about today, Mm. that transformation. The transformation from somebody who takes to somebody who gives. Yeah. And that's the transformational nature of this particular commandment. Yeah, that's it. And it's like with all the commandments, because you've got to go back to the one before it. And the fault that we find ourselves dealing with in any one commandment, like if we become a taker, then we've got to go back to where's the the root of that failure in the commandment before it. Mm. And so that was the seventh commandment, which was do not commit adultery. Mm. But that has to be seen as something deeper than just the act of adultery. I remember when we did it, it was about commitment and faithfulness to a person that you give value and worth to so that together you can live a wholesome and fulfilling life. So this whole thing of the worth of a person comes in. Are you taking from that person or are you giving them a commitment? So you can see something has failed in commandment seven and now it starts to, the roots start to bring out another kind of fruit, manifestation of that problem. Mm. Yeah. Well, what I found interesting about this series is it's really talking about the valuing of relationships. And on a surface reading of the Ten Commandments, it's not something that perhaps is obvious to people, but the transformational nature really centers around the valuing of these relationships and our relationships both with God and with other people. So with this one specifically, can you talk more about how this works in a progression from the seventh to the eighth commandment? Okay, well look, I've opened it up already, but there's more to what I just said, because in that unfaithfulness and infidelity, in the failure in commandment seven, this thing called materialism begins to establish itself in the heart of the person. You've got relational integrity and you've got material integrity. Like what do you do? What is it with people and what is it with things, right? 
But when a person should be being satisfied in a relationship, a wholesome relationship, a fulfilling life, and they start to, instead of being satisfied, we did talk about that in Commandment 7, they start to want to be gratified. Well, self-gratification and things that people can have or indulge themselves in, in the Seventh Commandment, start to become more important than other people and their needs and their feelings. So it creeps in that way. And that shift in values makes itself evident in this commandment, Commandment 8, when a person starts to devalue not just the relationship, because you can see the, the wobble coming there in Commandment 7, but they start to devalue the actual worth of people generally. In other words, people become independent of relationships for life fulfillment. If they're not receiving anything from relationships, when th then they won't value them. They start to take for themselves rather than gratefully receiving from others. See, like relationship, we do one another favours. We have expectations of one another. And we can almost expect confidently that, oh, that person will do that for me because that's the way we care for one another and help one another. If that sort of drops out of a relationship and nobody expects anybody to even care for what they do, then something's gone barren. So people, instead of expecting to receive, they'll say, well, I'll just take what I want. They're not going to do it for me. I'll take it. All of a sudden, there's nothing there where there used to be something there. Mm -hmm. There used to be a relational expectation. Receiving always involves having an encounter with a person. Like, hello, would you like this? Yeah, thank you. That's receiving. Taking is you don't even talk. You can just go and get something out of the car. <laughs> or well, you might tell them you're going to do it, but you're going to do it anyway, whether they agree with whether it or they not. Agree or not. And that's taking. Mm. And that's what this commandment's about. Receiving is relational. When we receive, we express gratitude, appreciation, not only for the whatever you get, the thing that you get, you know, here's a banana. Oh, thank you. I needed that. But you think this person that gives me this... I want to value them for the effort that's gone into their giving. Somebody goes out of their way to give you something, you value them in who they are. You value the worth of that person because they've thought of you and they've given to you. Anyway, that's where this commandment's going today. That's where we're going into appreciating somebody that's been able to give to you and also being the sort of person that has got the capacity out of the abundance of your life to be able to give other people the blessing of, of your overflow or somebody who's in need. Even you'll sacrifice to give them. And that's just the opposite to being a thief. Yeah. Right? Sacrificial giving is quite different to yeah, taking. Yeah, that's still, right. Yeah. That's it. It's the opposite. Yeah. So the commandment in the Old Testament says, do not steal. But can you talk more about the New Testament understanding of this commandment? Because as we've seen, each of the commandments so far have had a New Testament interpretation, haven't they? Yes. There's always something. Either Jesus said something or the apostles write about it in the epistles. But I do have an example which I found crept up on me. I was talking about the Ten Commandments in the school that we used to be involved in. And I asked a class of primary school students about this Eighth Commandment. Earlier on you said, once a thief, always a thief. Well, I asked them a question. When is a thief not a thief? Kids love those sort of riddles, right? Well, they all had answers and they were very entertaining. 
Um, and some of them came close to getting it right, but none of them could really give the correct answer because the correct answer is this transformational thing that we'll see in the scripture. Um, I'll just give you some of the answers that they said. Things like, a thief stops becoming a thief when he goes to jail. <laughs> I thought we could talk about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Was he stealing from his soulmate? Yeah. That's right. He probably learns how to become a better thief. <laughs> or um, a thief stops being a thief when he's got enough money. Mm, well, nobody's not. ever got <laughs> enough money. A lot of them thought the answer was when he stops stealing, which that seems like the obvious answer. And that's a good answer. But the scripture tells us there's a greater transformation than just stopping stealing to change a thief from being a thief. And Paul wrote it in Ephesians chapter 4 in this particular issue. He says, let him who stole steal no longer. So there's stage one. So say we're coming from minus five up to zero. I'm not stealing anymore. Well, you're getting close to zero, but there's more you've got to do. The scripture here says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor or let him work working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Mm, that's a great verse, a which talks there, about the transformation, isn't it? It is. Perfect. Yeah. You're going from one end of the spectrum yeah. to the other. So you're coming from minus five, you've stopped stealing, maybe you get up to minus three there. Mm. I don't steal anymore. Have you got a job? Oh, no, who needs to work? Mm. Oh, well, you better work. Oh, okay, go and get a job. Well, you're coming up to minus two. Okay, you're working with your hands what is good. Okay, so you're being productive. Well, you're up to zero. Mm. You're doing productive. Well, what are you going to do now? Oh, well, I've, I've got something worthwhile. Mm. Ah, so you're starting to value what you've got and you're seeing the value of your work. Well, you're getting above the line now. Maybe you're up to mm. plus two. Oh, well, but now I can give to somebody. That's plus four. And not only that, but to somebody who's in need. Oh, you're putting compassion and loving. Wow, you've gone from minus five to plus five. Mm. That's transformation. Yeah, and it, it also shows us that working is more than just providing for ourselves. It's so that we can give. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah that's very good. Yeah. So the total transformation is that the taker becomes a giver. They become an honest worker on the way. So you can see that this commandment is more than just about stealing. It's about a change of heart that brings a person into the full understanding of two things. Their own worth, because now they feel worth something. I think people that steal somehow don't have a sense of even worth of themselves because they don't think that what others have got is worth anything. Mm. Put it this way, they don't value the worth of what the person went through to get what they've got. But I think often, too, thieves, when they take something, they don't even value the thing that they've taken once they have it. That's it, a good point. Yeah, yeah. so there's this... I haven't had to work for it. There's this lack of a value system in regards to the value and worth of things. So that scripture covers, let's say, three areas. Material honesty, like I'm not going to steal anymore. I'm going to actually do something honest, right? Like a job. I'm going to become productive, which is another kind of energy. I'm not going to sit around and just say, I hate this job. I'm going to give it something good, which is important. Do with your hands, it says, that thing which is good. And I'm going to become a generous giver. So we've got material honesty, productivity, and generous giving. Mm. These seem like very practical and material things. What does the Bible say about the spiritual aspect of these three areas about material honesty, productivity, and generous giving? 
as we said, in other words, stealing has got a lot more than just the unlawful taking away of someone's goods. It's the whole sphere of respect and responsibility for what belongs to other people. I think you were saying that before. They don't even think that what they've taken is worth anything. So there's respecting what belongs to other people. Supposing somebody gives you something to look after and says, will you look after this for me and take responsibility for it? And you just neglect it. You don't value that this, this is something that they value and they've given this camera for me to look after and I've, I've left it out in the rain or something. You know, it's, it's all of these things about care and then making restitution. Oh, you left my camera out in the rain and, and it's going to cost me 50 bucks to get fixed. Oh, well, gee, that was bad luck, wasn't it? I didn't think it was going to rain. No, there's restitution. That's a responsible thing to do. Whether it was negligent or even if, uh, if an accident happens, you think of what somebody else owns and you respect it. In fact, there's volumes in the Bible about things like ownership, stewardship, borrowing, lending. Jesus gives a parable about the talents that you've got. You've been given this. What are you going to do with it? Oh, I'm going to hide it. No, use it. This is God saying these things have got spiritual value. And he's not just doing this to give us handy hints on marketing. Well, now you can organise yourself in the marketplace. He's relating our management of material things with our management of spiritual things. In fact, Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, if you haven't been faithful in the what he calls the unrighteous mammon, the old English word which means money or saleable goods, who will commit to your trust the true spiritual riches? So in other words, how can I trust you to get my kingdom order of things right? Because God's got a kingdom, spiritual thing, and it has an order. If I'm going to entrust you with the order of my kingdom, how can I do that if you don't get the material order of things right down here? So he requires us to be productive. We're not to be idle and lazy. We're not to presume upon others for our welfare because we're not recognising and appreciating the worth of somebody else's productivity. So God's looking at all of this. And Paul even pulled the church up on this in Thessalonica. And he writes to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And he says, don't you remember the rule we had when we lived with you? If you don't work, you don't eat. And now we're getting reports that a bunch of lazy good-for-nothings are taking advantage of you. He's talking to the church people saying, there's a group of people that are just coming in and taking your stuff because they're presuming upon you. He says, this must not be tolerated. We commend them to get work immediately. No excuses, no arguments, and earn their own keep. Well, that's straight out Eighth Commandment stuff, isn't it? Mm. He's, he's actually echoing that. But really, he's talking about people that were lazy. He wasn't talking about people that Can't had a disability or, or, or just yeah. couldn't, couldn't that's, work. That's a completely different scenario. A completely different yeah. scenario. These are people who've got the... The skills, the capability to work. Yeah, that's They just right. don't want to work. No, and, they and just don't want to work. They're just lazy. And, and laziness is, is really a sin, isn't it? I mean, it, it is. God expects us to be productive. He does. But there are people that need to be cared for that for various reasons, and what you've said, that they need to be looked after because Jesus said the poor you'll always have with you. So we've got to think of that. It's not like saying, oh, well, you can't work because, you know, there's no job for you or you've been poor and you're living in terrible circumstances. Oh, forget about you, you're lazy. Now, they may just need to be helped and given the, the leg up to get out there. 
Even Jesus, who said the poor you will always have with you, made a point of giving to the poor out of the common purse that he had of himself and his own disciples. And uh, he trusted one of his disciples to do it. And his name was Judas. Yes, he used to help himself a little bit sometimes. Now you think, why would Jesus give Judas the money? I think in some ways that's the mercy of God. That's God saying, Judas, this is going to bring something into the light for you. You're going to be challenged every day for the thing that I want to see corrected in your life. I'm giving you a chance to bring something into the light. God does that with us. We're given something and we think, wow, this is a nice, nice, easy thing. And God says, yeah, but that's going to put you <laughs> on the wood. That, that's going to test you out to see how, what your attitude is towards your responsibility to that mm. and what sort of things you need to have happen in your life so that you do this the best you can. I reckon God wants us to do whatever we do the best we can. And so he, he brings out this balance, you know, of the kingdom of God and the material things. And also here we're talking about the balance of justice, like you've got to work, but you don't eat, and mercy. Some people need help. Need help. Mm. Well, what about people who employ other people to do work for them? Well, that justice and mercy principle covers everyone in the marketplace. And there are scriptures that apply to those who employ other people in the Old Testament, there's also one in the New Testament, but in Deuteronomy 24, it says, never take advantage of poor and destitute laborers, whether they are fellow Israelites or foreigners living in your towns. You must pay them their wages each day before sunset because they're poor and they're counting on it. If you don't, they might cry out to the Lord against you and it will be counted against you as sin. Now, there's a responsibility. It's Old Testament, but it is a responsibility. It's really stealing from them, isn't it? If they've, they've provided yeah. their service yeah. to you and you don't pay them, particularly when you know that they're in need of that money that is due to them and you withhold that, then that's stealing. So withholding things from people you owe money to is stealing from them. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. Not paying your bills mm. and things like that. Now, in the New Testament... Paul writes about respecting the worth of another person's labour in Ephesians chapter 6. He's just been talking about people who are working, right, in the workforce. And he says, work as though you're working as unto the Lord, not just giving eye service, you know, not when, just when people are watching, you know, be productive. He's really into this, you know, because he sees the two things going hand in hand too, the, the material and the spiritual. He says, employers, now it's the same with you, no abuse, no threats. You and your workers are both under the same master in heaven. He makes no distinction between you and them. So we're still looking at this productivity thing. You know, how productive are you being, how respectful. Which brings me to a point about God himself. You know, why is God getting us to do all of this? <laughs> is it all about work? Well, I think, yeah, a lot of things are about work because God is a worker. I don't think we're going to sit around lying on clouds in heaven. I don't really know what heaven's going to be like, but I do think it's going to be a very productive place. I mean, look at all the stuff we've learned down here. What, so we're not going to be sitting on clouds playing harps? Not harps. Right. I do love harps. But the workers will be there. I do believe there's going to always be work to do. See, God loves to work. He enjoyed creating us. 
Jesus even said, God now works and I work with him. There was this energy that was creative and productive. Well, God's never stopped doing that. He's doing it right now. And Jesus was the first of the new creation and that probably deserves an episode in itself about the new creation because... That'll be good. Yeah, that's, that's going to well, be look at quite that one magnificent. Day. Yeah. But when God did create in the creating of the universe, and he created the, the stars and the, and the earth, everything he created, the plant life and animal life, he paused after each act of creation and he evaluated what he'd done. He takes notice of that and he said it was good. Now, a lot of people think when Adam and Eve fell, um, they'd been wandering around in the garden and now they have to get sent off to work because he says, you will work by the sweat of your brow. A lot of people think that work only started after sin came into the earth and that it's a curse. No, before they fell, God had said, we have no man to till the earth. He wanted a worker in his garden. (laughs) That's right. So that was going to be the job. And we've still got that job. We've still got it. I have. Anyway, I do quite a bit in the garden. But not that I love gardening, however, it's not a curse. But work is a blessing. It's a privilege. It's God's provision. And God wants us to get the right attitude to it. And that's why things like squandering and gambling are against God's work ethic. You know, people say, oh, you know, there's too much gambling. And other people just are spendthrifts. You know, they spend too much money and they say, Oh, yeah, well, that's just their personal problem. But look, it has to do with this commandment because a gambler can often waste what has been earned by his own hard work. Mm. Gamblers are not necessarily lazy. Some of them are very hardworking people. But why waste what's been earned? Now, yeah, that is there to attend to. But I believe God wants to have a person understand that to value more their work and their productivity so that they will have more left over for their family and for others that are in need. And the lesson of life shows us that gamblers really do not win. Mm. Just like the squanderer. He seems to have little regard for the worth of his own work or the work of others because it's all blown Mm. when it gets there. So So But but when gamblers do win, the first thing a lot of them do, is use that to bet on something else. Yeah, well... So even when they win, they don't value the winnings. No, that's that's it. So So that probably comes into a lot of what we spoke about last week in addiction. Mm. And greed. And greed and things like that, Mm. yeah. Mm. So as well as God being a worker, God is a giver. So that's all in this Eighth Commandment. He lives to give and to share, actually. Really, sharing is more relational than giving. Because I could give you a ticket, you know, to go to a concert or I could say, hey, I've got two tickets here, we're going to share these tickets or here's something you and I can share together. Sharing is relational. I believe God shares his life with us rather than just says, well, here's my life like, and here's some gifts, you know, some spiritual gifts and talents I've given you. Thank you. I can use them. And we go off and use them. And he says, yeah, hang on, I'm part of this. I want you to share your life with me. No, no, you gave me this. It's mine. This is my life. That's a problem. Mm. He gave us his life so that we could share his life. And that's how relational giving really is. It's being willing to share. Mm. Giving and taking are just two opposites. It's like life and death. One gives and the other takes away. Giving gives and taking takes away life. But in Jesus, he overcame death. He died for us on the cross. 
And the power of the resurrection is there to be seen in our lives. Like I said, he gives us his life. It wasn't just like, here's some life to have. He gave us his life. He died to give us life. So you think, death takes away. Life gives. Death takes away. But when you give life, like Jesus did, in love for someone, you lay down your life. There's a power in that. And in Jesus, there was the power of his resurrection that came out of his giving of his life, not just trying to do good things for us, he gave his life. And that can be seen in people who take that on board and believe it. And that can help them to give of themselves because Jesus showed he gave his life. People who believe God and want to live for God give their life back to God and then to other people. Now, I'm not just talking about finances, but whatever there is, our time, our effort. But the reason that God uses finances as an illustration is that people generally place a lot of value and worth on what they own. It doesn't have to be finances. It can be things that they've got. And so God's wanting to get at this thing about you're putting a lot of value on stuff that you've got, but there's a life to be given And the truth is about things that we've got, we don't own anything really. Everything belongs to God. Everything. Yeah, there's a scripture that says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness and the world and those who dwell therein. So God's placed giving in a huge sphere of life and death, you know, giving of your life. And then Jesus giving it to such an extent that when he died, he even got his life back again. And that's what giving and generosity does. It somehow reproduces itself and grows fruit of itself Mm. so that you can't give it away. You give it away and it grows more. Mm. You give your life away, more life comes. Mm. That's part of the Eighth Commandment. Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it. I'd like to spend a bit of time talking about giving to God. Because I think this is a big topic within Christian circles. We probably won't have a lot of time to go into a lot of depth, but we should talk about it, and that's tithing. Yeah. And and there's right. nothing magical about the word tithing, is there? It just means ten percent. Yeah. So right. yeah, it's not a it's not a religious term even really. It's just yeah. a, a term that was is used to say ten percent. Yeah. Would you see tithing being related to this commandment? Because the scripture says in Malachi three eight, which is often quoted. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. So could you tell Mm. us a a little bit about what that means? Yeah, you're right. Tithing, 10%. And the the word has kind of been given a high hierarchy of of value, you know, as as a word to tithe as a special thing. And, And I suppose it is a special thing in that it's used here as something that acknowledges the goodness of God. In fact, I believe that that tenth is because we acknowledge God's ownership of everything. And so that's what we're trying to say. We're grateful. You own everything. And wow, everything I've got came from you. So I want to honour that by this gesture of appreciation. Mm. You know, I so want it's not to out it. of obligation. Not out of obligation. I just want to acknowledge it and say thank you. It's just like a card, a thank you card. God doesn't need any money, mm. but he does like a thank you card. <laughs> That's there in the Old Testament. And there are a lot of people who disagree with tithing even the principle of it, because they believe that it belongs under the law of Moses. And so therefore, it no longer applies in the New Testament. And that's not quite true. 
Tithing does belong under the law of Moses, but tithing started before Moses was even born and it was first performed by Abraham, like a relational act of worship. He'd just won a big battle and he meets some kings and he wants to honour God. He says, I'm going to give a tenth of all the booty, you know, out of the battle to God, the possessor of heaven and earth. That's in Genesis chapter 14. That's a long story. We won't go into it. But just to say that he acknowledged that God was the possessor of heaven and earth and he wanted to acknowledge him in that way with gratitude for allowing him to be successful. And then Abraham's grandson, Jacob, he was having an encounter with God. He put his head down to sleep and he had this vision and he saw a ladder going up to heaven and he knew that God was giving him some kind of prophetic vision of his future. And God gave him the promise of the inheritance of Abraham, his grandfather, and says, this is all going to be yours. And so then Jacob, just like Abraham, chose to give a tenth of everything he owned. And that wouldn't have just been money, everything he owned to God. And his tithing was from a heart of grateful receiving instead of entitled claiming. Oh, well, now I've got the inheritance, so I'm claiming it. It's mine now. No, he says, I want to always acknowledge that it's yours. I'm going to keep doing this. So relational tithing is an eternal principle when it's exercised with faith because of who we're giving to and why we're giving helps to change a taker into a giver because you're starting to appreciate where this is coming from and what you've got. And that helps to release faith for the provision of God in our lives. We can say, wow, it, God owns everything. Which part of all of this is mine? Well, actually, it's all God's. And so they were to give a tenth. So even though it started before Moses and the law, Moses was commanded to include tithing as part of the overall Mosaic law. Now, that was for Israel. They had to come under that as a law, mm. right? Well, so how does that apply to Christians today? So are we still supposed to be tithing? Well, having said all I've said, I don't believe that Christians are under the law as regards tithing mm. because that was for Moses and that was Israel. They had to do it under the law. It was an obligation. With us, it is a choice of acknowledgement of our faith and trust in God as our provider in all things. See, Israel had to do these things. They had to have an external outward sign for 1,500 years as a community, as a nation. They did these things and they gave a tenth. That was it. Mm. And they gave it to the Levite priest, didn't they? They gave it to the priest, that's right. Mm. And their Sabbath was, that's a seventh. I'll give you that. I'll give you a tenth of the stuff I've got, my possessions. I'll give you a seventh of my time. But what we're really saying, if you go back beyond that, he owns everything. He owns all of our time. He has, he has everything. We don't just say, well, you can have a seventh of my time on and a Sunday. And I'll keep the rest. I'll keep the rest. And you can have it. I'll keep the rest. No, it's not like we own the other 90%. That's not the way it works. Mm. It's not 10% belongs to God. <laughs> if that was tithing, then that's a deal. Mm. Like I'm paying the rent. And I'm doing God a favour by doing it. That's, that's right. This is an acknowledgement of a grateful heart. It's an act of worship. Mm. But there needs to be a revelation as that act of relational worship towards this person called God. In fact, it's Jesus that we tithe to. 
And the scriptures show us later on. And it's not a legalistic obligation. So I've never put pressure on people in church to tithe. People say I should say more about it. I do say enough about it in the sense that I believe we honour that God owns everything and we thank God for his provision and people have given opportunity to give. And some people say, I would like to give of my tithes and offerings. How do I do it? I don't say, well, I don't talk about tithes. I let people use whatever kind of words they want to use. But in the spirit of it, I don't put pressure on, I want to see people getting a revelation of it. And I give lots of encouragements to people to trust God as a giver, as a provider, and to become giving people in their generosity, not just of money, but of of how they care for one another. And I believe, I feel I'm being more faithful to God in this whole aspect than if I said, yes, now you've got to tithe, I want to know who's tithing, and I'm going to keep a record of it. I can't can't do it that. You see, we're not under law. Being under something means you've got to be accountable to it. We're not accountable to the law for tithing. We're under grace. So we're accountable to grace. You think, well, what does that mean? (laughs) We don't have to do anything. Now, that means we have to have a revelation of what grace is, which is the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit within us that changes our heart to desire to respond to God's love and purpose and lordship over our lives. We accept that. We get a revelation of it. And we're glad to have it. And then that becomes an act of worship in us. The word worship, you know, came from an old English word called worthship, which is very much in this Eighth Commandment. So our act of worship, it's a spiritual thing, becomes our motivation And it's what Christians are ultimately accountable for, grace, to get a revelation of God and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit and everything comes out of that motivation. Mm. We're not working to make ourselves more spiritual. We're accepting the fact that we have the Spirit of God within us and out of that empowering of the Spirit, the power that works in us, we are able to bear fruit and work out our salvation from that place of having, not lacking. Mm. We have and abound. Paul writes and says, you have all. All things are of God. All things are yours. You've got it. Mm. Don't be sparse with it. Mm. God loves a cheerful giver. That's because we've got it. We share it with God and we can trust. So there's another dynamic at work Mm. other than the law. Mm. And the quicker we acknowledge that God owns everything and particularly as God relates to us in our lives, this act of worship isn't just singing a hymn or two on a Sunday. No. Which I think a lot of people equate that's what worship is, just singing a hymn or yeah, two. That's but, right. but our lives should be acts of worship yeah, exactly. continuously. And it's yeah. not just a seventh of our time on a, on a, right. a, a Sunday right. and a week. It's our whole week that's, should that's be an it. act of worship. And everything we have and everything we do should really be unto the Lord, which is really an act of worship. Our whole, whole lives should be unto the law. And that's what grace is. That's why we're not under the law. We're under that grace. We're accountable to access what you've just said and to live like that. If you really look at it, that's a harder thing to do than to be under the law sometimes. Yeah, because 10% is easy. You that's just, right. You, just you do the your box. sums, you move the decimal point, and <laughs> that's you right. that's put right. the cash in the envelope that's, and you're done. That's it. But as well as being motivated this way, there are other motivations for people to do the right thing. And I don't condemn people for doing the right thing sometimes a little less than the best possible way. 
a lot of people don't tithe like this. For example, people can fear that if they don't tithe, then God's provision won't be there for them. Well, I don't say that's a sin to think that way, but it's not as good as the relational thing of saying, wow, I've got all of God's provision, I've got everything, and now I want to acknowledge this by doing this, and I want to give to other people, etc. But then there's, a, there's another side to it too. There are people who can become transactional about tithing, and it's almost like some preachers encourage them mm. to become transactional. Mm. And they say, give listen, you pay, give your tithes, double tithes, and get a greater financial for blessing. And I've got testimonies to show that you will get a whole lot if you tithe. You come here and tithe. Go. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, but that's not good enough. No, where's the motivation? Where's the motivation? Mm. Mm. So what I believe God is looking for is a relational response to someone who means everything to them. Does God mean everything to us? Yes. Do we mean everything to God? Yes. It's a two-way thing. Let's get together. <laughs> okay, there's one scripture in the New Testament that does tell us about tithing. And this will help clear up what I'm saying about the relational aspect of tithing. Of course, there is a New Testament scripture. It's in Hebrews chapter 7. Paul, I believe, who wrote it says, Here, that means on earth, mortal men, that's Levites, because they were still practicing in Judaism when this was written, Here, mortal men, Levites, receive tithes. But there, that means in heaven, he, that's Jesus, receives them. Now there you've got it. Here on earth, it's Levites, there in heaven, it's Jesus. Well, when? Who said? Paul gets a revelation of this. We can go into this more deeply one day. He gets a revelation of, of Jesus in his Melchizedek priesthood that receives tithes, of whom it is witness that he lives. In other words, it's the risen Christ receiving tithes. Goes on to say, for when there is a change in the priesthood, because Jesus has a Melchizedek priesthood. Mm. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Not according to the law of human commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Now, when I said a Melchizedek priesthood, the Bible says about Melchizedek or, and about Jesus' priesthood, it had no beginning, no end, no father, no mother. So it's hinting at something beautiful here about eternal life. Um, we won't go into it now, but we will one day because it'll yeah. be a good study. And interesting, you didn't mention it before, but Abraham actually gave to Melchizedek. To Melchizedek. Well, we'll yeah. start there yeah. when we do that. Okay, that's, be that's very interesting. interesting study. Yeah. That's that's. That's it. That's got a lot to do with that. So you see, we're under a different law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ. So under that law, we give, we tithe to Jesus. Man, I would rather be doing that than transferring the Old Testament law, will you rob God? <laughs> Come here under Moses. So that means the old law under Moses was to tithe to a human priesthood for the support and provision of the Levites, right? To honour God. They tithe to men. That law is finished. That was the old law of sin and death. Now we're under a new law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We now tithe to him, a person in heaven, a priest of a new order. God owns everything. Mm. And he was looking after 
his people. He wants us to get the message because he's looking after us and he wants us to feel cared for and secure. Mm. Well, when I read from the book of Malachi, we saw that God expected his people to appreciate his worth by paying tithes. This was obviously not because God needed the money. Um, he owns everything, as we saw in Psalm 24 earlier. Yeah. Yeah. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. He wanted them to get it, that he was looking after them and that they could feel cared for and secure, didn't he? Yeah, you're right. What they were doing was giving to the Levites and they were the priests between God and man. Right now, we've got Jesus as our priest. Jesus is also the Lord of the harvest and he says, pray that the Lord of the harvest can send labourers into his vineyard. And Paul writes about it, there is provision made for people in leadership in church who are serving the church through the word of God and in other ways are to be looked after by the giving of the people. So there is a parallel there. I still don't believe it's under the law. That's why I don't put it on people. But Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and he says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God's concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because those that plough should plough in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. He's talking about himself, ministers. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Mm. New Testament. He's not calling it tithing, so I won't call it tithing. Mm. It's a provision for those it's doing a provision. the Lord's work, right? But Paul himself, he believed in that, otherwise he wouldn't have said it, but he also worked. He had a job. He was a tent maker so as not to burden the people. So he wasn't going to presume upon it. Now, I believe in that. I do the same thing, actually. Because mm. you're a pharmacist, aren't you? Yeah, and I'm not mm. trying to blow my own trumpet, but I feel genuinely, if I've got the ability to help lift the, the burden off people to give, I'll do that too. Mm. And then that, to me, that's part of God's provision mm. because I, I love to do it. He's allowed me to be productive and I'm able to give in another way to people in the community. I don't resent that. I don't think, oh, I've got to have a job. That's part of serving and I feel quite comfortable in it. I'm glad Paul did it. Well, Paul was a tent maker, wasn't he? He was a tent maker. Yeah, I don't know what's harder. What I... <laughs> Do all making tents. But he was bringing the Old Testament giving to the Levitical priesthood into the New Testament giving to the ministry in the New Testament church. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul writes to Timothy and he said, give a bonus to leaders who do a good job, especially the ones who work hard at preaching and teaching because scripture tells us don't muzzle an ox as it treads out the grain, and a worker is worthy of his wages. Preachers like that one. <laughs> I bet they do. you just got to be careful of attitudes. Yeah. Uh, well, you said before that even in the world, people understand the principle that giving generously causes people to give back to you. I think people can understand that from just their life experience. There are scriptures about that, aren't there? And in Luke chapter 6, it says... For if you give, you will get. Your gift will return to you in full, 
and overflowing measure, pressing down, shaken together to make room for more and running over. Whatever measure you use to give, large or small, will be used to measure what is given back to you. Yes, that's very straightforward. That's not tithing. That is giving generally and giving generously. This is the full transformation of the taker and the giver. And God says, when you do that, you just watch what happens. It seems to speak for itself. Well, you see that in human relationships too, don't you? People who are very giving people of their time and interested in other people tend to attract other people who want to be friends with them. And they have a bigger, wider circle of friends where people who are closed and, and don't want to give much of themselves away tend to probably be more isolated. Well, there you are. And that's not even to do with material things, is it? It's just a general principle. General principle. So there are many people in the world that I know of that that say that works. And they mightn't even go to church, but they run their businesses like that. They give and they get back. And it works for anything that's given out of a giving heart. But there are consequences, like you said before, in the attitude of a taker's heart, like you just said. And there's a scripture for what you just said in Proverbs 11 about the one who holds back. And it says, um, there is one who scatters and yet increases more and more. Like the more they give away, the more they get. That's what you just said. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. So on the one hand, the one who withholds is like the hoarder who stops the flow of giving and receiving because they take more than they should hang on to. It was like toilet rolls in the in the coronavirus. During the pandemic. Probably in the pandemic. But you even see it in um, a fuel strike. They rush, they hoard the fuel. There's a greater crisis than there was in the first place. Because once the panic starts, most of the petrol gets piled up in people's garages. And so instead of being used to keep our cars on the road, it's sitting in garages. So it tends to poverty. On the other hand, The first part of this scripture about the faith principle that releases a miraculous increase of what is given is the one who scatters. And there's a story of Elijah. In the book of Kings 1, Kings 17, there was a time of famine and God told him to go and ask a certain widow for some water and some bread because God was telling him, you're going to need to be provided for. Here's how I'm going to do it. So he goes to her and she says, I've run out of bread. And all she had was some oil and a little leftover flour. So Elijah says, well, God told me to ask you to bake some bread and that there'd always be plenty of flour and oil left until the time when the Lord sends the rain and the crops. She believed that. Well, she had to. I mean, he was a prophet and he knew what he was saying. So she honoured God and gave to the servant, gave him to the max, right? She sacrificed. She did what he said. And the flour and the oil kept multiplying for as long as it was needed. Now, the strange thing is that the ending, after a while, her son came, became really sick and he died and she thought God had sent Elijah to punish her. So Elijah says, no, I'm pray. He raises the boy back to life and left her with her resurrected son and they lived ever happily ever after. I want to just finish by saying this. We're worth everything to God. I mean, why are we here in the first place? Did God need more slaves? more entertainment, watching us, making mistakes, making fools of ourselves. No, he, God highly values us and everything that we give to him in our love and obedience to him, he values that. As we honour him by giving acknowledgement and thanks, 
He's pleased when we share with others. That's what he loves. It is productive and multiplies the goodwill, his goodwill. It is noble. It is worthwhile. It is the eighth commandment. Mm, well, that's a great summary, Paul, and a good place to end this episode. Next time, we're going to talk about commandment number nine, which is don't bear false witness against thy neighbour. That's a big one. Yep. Talk to you then. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Paul.